Gospel according to Matthew chapter 14. We'll begin, we'll read, we'll read the entire chapter. Our text is taken from verses 22 to 33, which we will not reread. So we'll read the chapter, paying careful attention to that section of the chapter that pertains to the miracle of Jesus walking on the water. We hear the inspired word of God. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. For Herod had laid hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. And when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude, because they counted him as a prophet. But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod, whereunto he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John Baptist's head in a charger. And the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the old sake, and them which sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her. And he sent and beheaded John in the prison. And his head was brought in a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it, and went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart. And when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them. And he healed their sick. And when it was evening, his disciples came to him saying, This is a desert place and the time is now past. Send the multitude away that they may go into the villages and buy themselves victuals. But Jesus said unto them, They need not depart. Give ye them to eat. And they say unto him, We have here but five loaves and two fishes. He said, Bring them hither to me. And he commanded the multitude to sit down on the grass and took the five loaves and the two fish. And looking up to heaven, he blessed and brake and gave the loaves to his disciples and the disciples to the multitude. And they did all eat and were filled. And they took up of the fragments that remained twelve baskets full. And they that had eaten were about 5,000 men beside women and children. Then now follow the words of our text. And straightway Jesus constrained his disciples to get into a ship and to go before him unto the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea. Tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them, walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a spirit. And they cried out for fear. But straightway Jesus spake unto them, saying, Be of good cheer, it is I. Be not afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, Come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. 
But when he saw the wind boisterous, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched forth his hand and caught him and said unto him, O thou of little faith, wherefore didst thou doubt? And when they were come into the ship, the wind ceased. Then they that were in the ship came and worshipped him, saying, Of a truth, thou art the Son of God. And when they were gone over, they came into the land of Genesaret. And when the men of that place had knowledge of him, they sent out unto all the country round about, and brought unto him all that were diseased, and besought him that they might only touch the hem of his garment. And as many as touched were made perfectly whole. We read God's word that far. May God bless his word to our hearts. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, this miracle takes place immediately upon the death of John the Baptist and right after the feeding of the 5,000 men beside women and children. Jesus' popularity here is reaching new heights. And many people are desiring now to carry Jesus off and to make him their king. To their credit, the Jews knew the Old Testament prophecies and they believed that the Messiah was coming to be a king. As a king, they were looking to him as one who would be, however, a very different sort of king than the kind that Jesus had ordained. One God had ordained, one who would heal the sick, one who would raise their dead, feed them, one who would make it so all the problems of their world and their life would be solved. And so as Jesus is doing miracles, he's doing wonders, increasingly, they want to make him king. They want to take hold of him. They misinterpret the Old Testament prophecies to teach an earthly kingdom. And they imagine then a kingdom that the prophets had never spoken of or never prophesied of. Now Jesus knew their hearts and he retreats now to a mountain to pray. That's striking. Why would Jesus have to go to a mountain to pray? But we understand that the fact that he needed to pray is evident that he had a real human nature. And he was a man, like as we, with a weakened human nature. So that he was subject to getting tired. He was subject to weakness. But also now, praying for strength over against temptation. The devil was working hard on him through these multitudes. And as a man, he needed strength to face the battle that he faced in opposition in opposing those who are trying to make him king. These people are trying to make him an earthly king. And he has to say no. And he has to go to the cross instead. In that struggle, we find Jesus here. He spends six hours in prayer in the mountain. And again, if Jesus needed to pray for six hours, how much more don't we have to often spend more time on our knees in prayer? His kingdom was a spiritual kingdom. It was a kingdom that would be established in the way of the cross. And Jesus knew that. And he prayed for the strength to press on. Now we see in this miracle the wonder that salvation is found entirely and completely in Jesus Christ. He is our all-sufficient, powerful Savior. Every miracle has a slightly different emphasis as it sets forth the glory of God and the majesty of God. This miracle confirms what we experienced this morning in the Lord's Supper and what we witnessed this evening in baptism, that salvation is through Jesus Christ alone. We're directed to Christ and we're pointed to the one who is our Savior and the one who accomplished the whole of that salvation as King. 
He was truly a king, but a very different king than that which the Jews saw. And the perfect work that we lay hold on by faith is that work of Jesus Christ as our king, who has conquered sin, who's overcome the power of the devil, and who gives unto us to know the blessedness of living eternally as citizens of his kingdom. Going away from the table, we pray for the strength to keep our eye of faith focused on Christ. The king walking on the water, we take as our theme, noting the occasion of this, the miracle, and the result. Now, it's striking that three of the gospel narratives include this, this miracle. Whenever an event is recorded by one of the gospel narratives, of course it's important, but then to have it recorded by multiple and then by three makes it all the more significant. Each of them, by the purpose of the Holy Spirit, have a different emphasis and make a different approach to the miracle. So that the account of Mark in Mark 6 verses 45 to 56 records that Jesus was going to walk past the disciples They're in the boat. Jesus is walking on the water. But due to their fear in seeing him, he stopped by their boat. Now, it's striking in that incident that no mention is made of Peter. One would think there would have been mention of Peter because Mark is often incorporating Peter into his narrative. And especially because the purpose of Mark is to emphasize the power that believers receive by virtue of their faith in Jesus Christ. His emphasis is on the fact that that faith accomplishes and works wonders in the hearts and lives of God's people. When Christ is in the boat, Mark concludes, the believers can rest in peace. And so that becomes the emphasis. Christ is in the boat with the disciples and resting in him with his presence with them, they're able to know peace. John 6 also records this wonder in verses 15 to 21. He records the interesting fact that as soon as Jesus stepped into the boat, immediately it was at shore. That we don't have recorded here. And for John, again, the emphasis is on the divinity of Jesus, on the fact that Jesus is divine, that he's powerful, that he's the triumphant victor over all earthly limitations, over the whole of the creation. And that becomes evident in the power and the majesty he displays over the storm. The emphasis here in Matthew is strikingly on Peter. Peter is not mentioned in the other accounts, but Matthew records Peter joins Jesus on the water and then records the struggle that Peter had. Through the book of Matthew, the miracles of Jesus are generally directed with this emphasis, the necessity of keeping one's eye of faith focused on God. And that plays into then the inclusion of Peter into this miracle. In this history, Peter is now singled out as the one through whom that important lesson is caught. As we walk down life's pathway, we need to keep our focus on Christ. We cannot live apart from him. And we see ourselves in Peter. As we come away from the table, we need not only to relate to him, but we need to learn from his experience. And as we experience baptism and witness the sacrament, so important it is for us to keep our faith focused on Christ. In pride, we think that we can go through life alone. Quickly, we find out how devastating that is for us. We think we can go forward without looking to Christ, without leaning on him, without putting our trust in him for our salvation. Now, sometimes we object and we say, no, 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 I know I need Jesus. 
we would never dare say that we didn't need Jesus, but how do we show it? Where do we find Jesus? How are we encouraged by him in our day-to-day walk? Are we reading the Bible regularly knowing that it's that means that he uses for us by which he strengthens us? Am I spending time with him in prayer knowing that in that way I show my complete dependence on him? When his body gathers for worship, where am I? Am I present with that body knowing that Christ is present through the faithful preaching of the gospel and therefore I need to be where Christ is? Do I enjoy union with Jesus Christ? And do I show it by submitting to his lordship in every aspect of my life? Again, it's one thing to say I need Jesus. It's another thing to say he's lord of my life. And my whole life is to be dictated by him. I'm not the Lord. It's so easy to say I need Jesus and then to live our lives pursuing our own will, pursuing our own ways, forsaking the will of our Heavenly Father. Beloved, this is the question we face this evening. What does Jesus mean to you? And what does Jesus mean to me? Do I know the horror of my sin, the hell that I deserve? And do I realize the wonder of what Jesus did by his perfect sacrifice on my behalf? Am I living in wonder? Am I living in awe of what great wonders he performed on my behalf, moving me to thankfulness and praise and gratitude every moment of every day? How am I living in connection with Christ and his perfect sacrifice? Remember what some of the disciples that are recorded in the Bible did. Remember Mary. So appreciative she was of Jesus, she came and she poured ointment over Jesus' feet. Ointment that cost a whole year's wages. But she didn't hesitate. Jesus meant more to her than anything that she could imagine. As he had rescued her from sin and from the slavery of the devil. Beloved, we who know the wonder of that deliverance, how do we show our appreciation and our need for Jesus? Now, this miracle is similar to others that Jesus performed in the realm of nature. Jesus displayed again and again his power and authority over the creation about us. He stilled the storm. He caused wonders to take place, which demonstrated that he was the one in charge of everything that was taking place in the creation. A storm now comes up while Jesus is praying. The disciples are in the midst of that storm. Now, in the Bible, as we have multiple parables and even miracles performing performed that have to do with storms, we realize the picture here. The raging storm is a picture of the world and the life that the Christian lives in the midst of this world. Storms are raging and they affect us. They affect us Individually, they affect our families, they affect the church. And as these storms and as these winds blow and as they have their effect on us, how do we respond? To whom do we look? We're reminded this past week, the blizzards, the storm, the wind that shuts down schools, shuts down communities. God sends storms into our families, into our marriages, into the church. God's teaching us An important lesson. You can't go through life without me. You need me. And in the midst of all these storms, we're reminded how helpless we are. 
We're reminded that we can't stand for a moment of ourselves. And God is teaching us, you need me, and you need to be looking to me daily. Again, in pride, we think, we can go through life without praying, maybe once in a while. We don't really need the Bible so much. We don't need to read the Bible. Go to church twice? Surely that's not necessary. In pride, we think, I can live my life pretty much depending on myself, maybe having Jesus as a crutch once in a while. And then God drives us to our knees. And God reminds us, no, you can't. You need him every moment of every day. And God directs our focus to him. And so as God sends trials and pain and suffering and afflictions, we, we see the love of our Heavenly Father as He directs us to the one alone who's able to overrule all those storms and struggles in life. We're weak. He's strong. And we find our strength in Him. And we confess, I can't stand a moment without Him. Now the focus of this miracle is not on Jesus' presence, but on faith. In the other miracles, remember, Jesus was present with the disciples in the boat, and that became their comfort. He was there, and having Jesus there, they were encouraged. And God gives us that word of promise, that Jesus is with us, and the presence of Jesus is our comfort and our encouragement. I'm not alone. He's with me. But now the focus more of this miracle is the fact that God gives us the gift of faith. And that faith lays hold on him, even when he's not seemingly present. It seems as though he's far away, perhaps. The disciples now experience Jesus in the mountain. He's a long ways away from them, miles away from them. And how are they now to be able to live and to carry out their labor? Jesus demonstrates faith. Faith is necessary. And faith is that which enables you to look to me. By faith, you look to Christ. And by faith, you put your trust in him. And you acknowledge that he's the one who's ruling all things, and he's the one who's directing everything according to his perfect counsel. And that faith, as a gift from God, becomes active in the life of the child of God. So that God gives that precious gift to all of his children, uniting them to Christ. And now... The activity of that faith is evident as the child of God responds to the wonder of that gift by laying hold on, clinging to his Savior, expressing the knowledge and the confidence of the work of Christ on his or her behalf. When the Bible talks about faith being weak, as Jesus here speaks of with regard to Peter, he's not talking about that bond. The bond is the same for all of God's children. But how is the activity of that faith evident? And the activity of Peter's faith was not as it ought to be. And so often, that's the admonition we also need to hear. Are we trusting in him? Are we looking to him? Are we living in the conscious wonder of our salvation in Jesus Christ alone? Now Jesus here is preparing the disciples for the day when he's not going to be physically present with them. The disciples had to learn this. The time was coming when he would be crucified he would depart from them through the ascension and they would no longer be able to have Jesus personally with them. But Jesus is teaching them, look by faith to me. And how important that is for us also to hear. We can't walk with Jesus personally. We can't hold his hand. We don't have him present with us, personally teaching us. But we lay hold by faith on his sacrifice. We hear his word. We lay hold on the wonder of the work that he's performed. 
and by faith we look to him. Now Jesus gives them a command here that they're to heed. Be of good cheer. Be not afraid. And by that command, Jesus is saying, I'm in control of the wind. I'm in control of all of the waves. I'm in control of the whole of life. And you need to trust in me. Don't be vacillating. Don't be filled with fear. Look to me and believe that I am the one ruling all things. And go forward with this blessed assurance that Jesus Christ as my king is always watching over me. And he's the one who will protect and keep me safe. What does a king do? A king is in charge of the citizens of his country. And the king is responsible for keeping them safe and keeping them protected. And Jesus says, I'm that king. And I'm the one who will keep you safe and will protect you. Now the disciples are rowing and rowing. They're experiencing great trouble. An ordinary trip like they were engaged on would have taken maybe a couple of hours. Now they've been rowing for probably six hours and their energy is consumed. They're not making progress hardly hardly at all and they're at the point of deep exhaustion. We don't know at what extent the storm was actually threatening their lives but we do know that the master was not with them in the boat but the king was watching over them. From the mountain. They were not left alone. And he was even praying, likely also, on their behalf. As a mother caring for a busy household, you labor and you toil day in and day out. And at times you reach the point of mental, physical exhaustion. How can you go forward? You teach the children, you discipline them. It seems sometimes there's no fruit on your labors. As husbands, as fathers, we feel the weight at times of the responsibility that God places upon us. We are to love our wives, even as Christ loved his church. And what a weight that falls upon us. How am I loving my wife? How am I caring for my wife? And how am I nurturing my wife? How am I leading my family to Christ? And how am I showing them the love that is required? We become short sometimes with our families, we sometimes with our children and our wives, and then we're reminded sometimes too of that admonition that we not provoke our children to wrath. As we're seeking to live for God and as we're seeking in this life to show forth His glory, we find ourselves weak, inclined to temptation. We give over the sins that we despise. We hate those sins, and yet we find ourselves giving over to them. We turn away from what's right, And we do what's wrong and what's sinful. And we're filled with shame. We're filled with grief as we look at our own lives. Instead of walking humbly before God, we find ourselves walking in pride, acting as though we can stand in our own strength, that we can walk of ourselves. And the consequences of our sins sometimes begin to consume us. Friends forsake us. Tension is created in relationships. And we can look back and say, it's my fault. I was not walking in a manner that was conducive to friends being drawn to me, preserving friendships, maintaining friendships. At times, our sins bear terrible fruit in the lives of our children. And we as parents look back with shame as we see our children now running in areas where we walked. God reminds us, you're not alone. In the midst of the weariness and the struggles of life, Jesus is watching over his children. 
And Jesus knows our struggles. He's preserving us by his word and spirit. And he gives us the gift of faith so that we look to him and we cling to him and we find in him the strength that we need to go forward. We depend on him alone. Jesus places the disciples deliberately here in the boat to test their faith. And sometimes Jesus does that to you and to me. He places us deliberately in situations that resemble this boat, resemble periods of anguish and turmoil and stress and anxiety and exhaustion. But the love of Jesus was evident in his prayer. He was praying for them as they endured this trial of faith. And while the ship is being tossed with waves, the disciples are seasoned fishermen. They're becoming fearful. Jesus knew what was happening. He's in the cleft of the rock. He's making intercession that their faith be strengthened, that they not be afraid, that they look to God and put their trust in Him. As God tosses you and as He tosses me and as He tosses His church sometimes in the midst of this world with all kinds of afflictions and struggles, Jesus, our Savior, is praying for us. He's holding us close to Himself. And He's urging us and drawing us to Himself by the wonder of His grace to pray. Come to me, all ye that are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest. Look to me. Lay hold by faith on the wonder of what I've done on your behalf. I am your Lord and your King. I've conquered all the powers of darkness. I've overcome the devil for you and in your place in order that now I might preserve and keep you, leading you by my counsel and guiding you to glory. Jesus Christ so ordering the whole of your life and my life that he's causing it to serve our good and his glory. And he's holding communion with his Father, making intercession as our high priest, making sure that we're never tempted above that we are able, making sure that we receive all the grace and all the strength that we need moment by moment. Winds, roar, waves, crash. But Jesus Christ, not only sees our distress, he's with us by his spirit and he assures us, it is I. Be not afraid. And that's the wonder. Jesus went to them walking on the sea and as Jesus comes to them, he brings that word of admonition. Now we look at that miracle here as it's described in verse 25. After the fourth watch, Jesus went to them. There were four watches total through the course of the night. So this would, would be the end of the night. And it would be likely then between 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning. The disciples have been all night rowing at the point of exhaustion. And now when their hope, their strength appeared to be gone, he comes to them. And Jesus coming to them could only mean one thing. Help, deliverance at last. Jesus' presence meant salvation to them. He would bring them relief from all their fears. He would save them from all their difficulties. And he would give them the relief they so desperately needed. And so Jesus comes now in a way by which he shows his omnipotence, his power, the fact that he is God. The fact that the water bears his weight was due to a wonder of divine power. Jesus is walking on the water. 
And a path is made clear through the waves so that he can come walking directly to the boat that the disciples find themselves on. When the disciples see Jesus coming in the dim light of the dawning day, they at first are struck with fear. They don't know who it is or what it is. They could see something coming toward them, and it wasn't sinking into the water. It was walking, floating on the top. And so they assume it must be a ghost. They cry out for fear, but Jesus immediately identifies himself. It is I. Be not afraid. Verse 27. He comes showing his love, his mercy, his compassion to those who cry out to him in their fear and in the midst of peril. Jesus does not cast off his children. His children may find themselves in difficult straits due to their own sin and their own sinfulness. In mercy, he comes. And he uses the whole of nature here to serve the purpose of the salvation of his saints and his church. He's the Lord of hosts. That is, all the hosts of earth and heaven are at his control. And now everything is serving his perfect plan of bringing relief and salvation to his disciples. As Jesus is coming, we have the response of Peter in verses 28 and 29. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it be thou, bid me come unto thee on the water. And he said, come. And when Peter was come down out of the ship, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. Now Peter there with that question is not expressing doubt that Jesus was there, but this is the type of conditional statement that stresses certainty. In other words, he's saying, Lord, it's you. Therefore, command me to come. There are times when we desire to do great things for God and for his glory, and we expose ourselves to great peril. We overestimate our ability. We overestimate ourselves, and we underestimate the danger, thinking too much of self and not enough of others. The impulse of Peter here, thrilled at the possibility of the Lord's mastery of nature, now desires to share in Christ's triumph. And he says, come. He says, bid me to come. And so Jesus says, come in love to teach Peter his own weakness and the danger of presumption. Peter came, and Peter too walks in water. He feels the thrill for a few moments of the blessed promise that God gives us in Isaiah 43. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow thee. Jesus sustains Peter in a miracle. He's walking on the tempestuous sea and he's coming to Jesus. It was that command of Jesus, come, that was necessary for two reasons. First of all, Peter that way had concrete evidence of Jesus' approval by that command. And secondly, faith always lays hold on a promise. It lays hold on God's promises. And so Peter now, by faith, lays hold on that promise. Come, we lay hold on God's promise. God promises forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. By faith, we lay hold on that wonder and we pray, forgive us our sins on the basis of Christ's perfect work on our behalf. And the promises that God gives us in his word become the occasion by which we lay hold on them. This command was the promise to which Peter clings. By the power of Jesus, he could walk on water. In this case, that command of Jesus 
was evidence of giving Peter that ability to perform that command by faith. Peter didn't keep his eye of faith on Jesus, however. He starts looking away. And the tempestuous sea becomes more in his consciousness. And what happens? He becomes afraid and fearful. As a result, Peter starts to sink. He again looks to Christ, and now he cries out in alarm. And Jesus reaches out, catches him, and immediately, miraculously again, saves him. The danger revealed Peter's weakness. His self-confidence was gone. But God had delivered him to the hand of his own son. The sacraments, beloved, point us to Christ. God gives us the sacraments to direct us to Christ as the only one who is able to grant deliverance. Peter needed to keep his eye focused on Christ. And so you and me, we come into the presence of God with strong crying at time, with fervent tears and prayers. And we experience the wonder of his grace. He lifts us from that distress. He frees us from that terror. He gives us peace in the midst of the uncertainty. And he draws us closer to himself. We look away from Christ. We start focusing again on our troubles and our trials. And what happens? We return back again to the anxiety, the anxiousness, the turmoil. God comes to us again and again and says, keep your faith focused on Christ. God gives us the bread and the wine and he says, don't focus on the bread, don't focus on the wine, but focus on what that represents. Christ, whose body was broken for you, whose blood was poured out on your behalf. He gives us the water in baptism and he says, don't just look at the water, but look at what it represents. Christ and his blood shed for you. In the midst of all your distress and all your struggles, keep your eye of faith focused on him. He is your deliverer and your savior. He's the king to whom is given all power. And he will preserve his citizens every moment of the way. Beloved, by faith, we lay hold on his word and his promises. And we confess our weakness. Be of good cheer, it's I. Be not afraid, Jesus says. The disciples were relying on their own strength. They weren't leaning on Jesus. They weren't looking to him as their Lord and Savior. And again, we know what happens when we're looking at ourselves and our own situation. We become afraid. We start trusting in ourselves, and now we can't accomplish the things that we desire and need to do. We can't save and deliver our children from the ailments they experience. We can't help our wife, our husband. We're not able to deliver one another from the struggles, the difficulties. We become fearful. Jesus had sent them. And they should have had faith that Jesus would not send them without giving them the grace to persevere. He had just performed wonders and miracles and he was able to do far above anything they could imagine. They could not see Jesus. He was not with them. But they would have to trust him by faith. And their faith was weak. They lost sight of Jesus and doubts and fears have their way. How often, beloved, again, do we not experience the same? We know the promises of God. And we know the words that he speaks 
Beautiful promises. Promises that I'm with you. Be not afraid. Promises that he'll work everything together for good in our lives. Promises that he's watching over us. That he never leaves us. He never forsakes us. He gives promises that speak to our children and our generations. That he will be a God to us and to our children and our children's children. God assures us of the wonder of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins and the fact that our sins are forgiven in him and we have peace with him. God gives promise after promise, promises that are unconditional, that are worked by God in Jesus Christ for the good and for the salvation of his church. But the devil tempts us to despair. The devil tempts us to look away, look away from God, look away from those promises, look to ourselves, trust in self, The devil distracts us because he doesn't want us walking close to God. He doesn't want us pursuing the will of God and the way of God. And so he tries to get us to put our trust in ourselves, our own arm of flesh. We can stand in the midst of this temptation. We we won't be drawn into the temptation. Others may not be able to stand, but I can stand. Think of Peter again. That was exactly how Peter's talking throughout this time period. Though everyone forsakes you, Jesus, I won't forsake you. I'm able to stand. And Jesus has to warn Peter again and again, Peter, Peter, the devil's going to try to sift you as wheat. You need to look to me and put your trust by faith in me. Peter knew full well why he was beginning to sink. He was focusing on the problem, the difficulties, not on the mediator. Jesus' first admonition is positive. His second is negative. First he states, be of good cheer. Now just think about that. The disciples are in a boat. They're about to be capsized. They're struggling. They're filled with anxiety. And Jesus says, be of good cheer. They have to immediately stop what they're doing. And they're now commanded to be joyful. They're panicking. They're filled with terror. Immediately, Jesus says, stop being fearful and now be filled with joy and good cheer instead. I'm the one who sent you. Trust that my will was good. Now imagine their response to this admonition. They're fighting wind. They're fighting the water. They're fighting the waves. And yet they have to be joyful? Beloved, you may look at your life, and I can look at my life sometimes, perhaps, and we say, but obviously, obviously Jesus doesn't understand my situation. Obviously he doesn't understand what I'm in and what I'm going through. He would never expect of me that I'm supposed to be of good cheer, that I'm supposed to be joyful in this situation. Beloved, he is Lord. And Jesus knows the wonder and the marvel of the salvation that he's accomplished for his children. And Jesus comes to us and Jesus says, be of good cheer. Your way seems difficult because you're looking down. You're looking at yourself and your circumstances. Look to me. They hold by faith on the wonder of the promises. And as you look at those promises and as you focus on the wonder of what Christ did for you, his perfect sacrifice, How can you not but be filled with unspeakable joy? But secondly, he says then, fear not. The disciples' fear again is based on the fact that they're trusting in their own strength. And Jesus here is saying, I'm king, I'm Lord. 
I refused a crown from the multitudes, but that's not because I'm not king. It's just because I'm a different king. I'm a spiritual king. I'm no earthly king. I'm far more glorious of a king. I am the king who rules the wind and the waves, who rules every event that takes place in your lives. The king who is preserving his citizens and preparing them for a kingdom that is so grand and glorious that nothing can compare to it. Fear not. He was with them. He had been praying for them. His presence again now is physical. But again, beloved, what amazing and striking admonitions. Be joyful and don't be afraid. We know how earthly-minded we are. We know how inclined we are to the fear and the terror and the despair. These are admonitions that come in the midst of struggles, in the midst of challenges. And we hear the voice of our good shepherd and we stand in awe. How could it be possible? What hope could there be? And yet, this glorious Savior works that wondrous joy and peace in the hearts of his children. And the basis for his admonition is this. It is I. There's no room for fear. It is I. There's no reason to be afraid of the storm. I am your Savior. I am the one who came from my Father's bosom in love in order that I might give myself for you. Beloved, keeping our eye of faith focused on Christ. That's the admonition that Jesus ultimately brings here to the disciples. Look to God and to his promises. Look to what Christ has done for you. So long as Peter was keeping his focus on God's promises, he was able to walk. And the same, the temptation was the same for the disciples here. They didn't trust in Jesus to preserve them, even though Jesus had sent them away. They didn't keep their eye of faith on him. Now, does that mean then that we can go step on water and say, if only I keep my eye of faith on Jesus, I'll be able to walk? We don't have any command from Jesus, no promise that says you're going to be able to walk on water. We don't tempt God in that manner. We lay hold on the promises that God gives us in his word. And the promises of God have to do with the wonder of salvation, that God is our Father, that he loves us in Jesus Christ, that he will preserve his church, that the gates of hell will not prevail against her, and that he is faithful to forgive us again and again and again. Though we sin, though we oft sin against him, though we fail miserably, At times, he's faithful. Though we cause a mess in our lives and the consequences of sin threaten to devour us, we look to him and we acknowledge the wonder of his love, his faithfulness, and his grace. Jesus did not need to save Peter or the disciples by sheer force. He was able just to touch Peter's arm. He was able just to step in the boat and immediately all was well. Jesus could have merely spoke even. We know he has that kind of power. But here he uses touch as the means to renew faith. But notice what Jesus calls Peter, a man of little faith. Doubt, wavering had entered his heart. And he was not taking to heart the comfort that he should have derived from that promise. Come from the presence and the power of the Messiah, 
And again, beloved, we're no different. Every single day, we doubt that Jesus has truly the power to keep me from temptation. We doubt that Jesus really has the ability to make me joyful in this circumstance of my life. We doubt that Jesus really is able to make it so that I'm not afraid. We know the promises, but we begin to doubt and we question. Beloved, we need to be in the Word, spend time in prayer, looking to God, looking to Jesus Christ. We gather in worship and we come under the Word that we might be directed to Christ and to His Word and to the faithfulness of His promises. His promises are sure and everlasting. And we are driven to our knees to confess that little faith and to cry out that God strengthen our faith and that God grant us what we need day by day. We go back to what we began with. What do you think about Jesus? And how are you living with the wonder of his sacrifice ever before you? Fear is so natural. Of what are you afraid? What are we afraid of? Is not fear so often unbelief? We're not trusting. We're not standing in the confidence. We're not looking to him. We're focusing too much on self. He to whom we are joined by faith is the Lord of the wind, the Lord of the waves, and he is the King Almighty. His grace is sufficient, and he is our all-sufficient Savior. He's the one who is our complete Savior. There's nothing lacking. There's nothing more that we need. He's our faithful shepherd, leading and guiding us in love. What is the response of the disciples, beloved? Worship. They fall on their knees before Jesus and they confess the wonder of a truth. Thou art the Son of God. As soon as Jesus and Peter are in the boat, the wind ceased not only, but according to John 6, the ship is immediately at shore. Two miles covered in just a matter of moments. Jesus demonstrating without any doubt his power over all of nature. He is God and he is king. And the disciples stand before the reality. This one, even though he's refusing the crown, truly is our king. And he's the one who will care for us as his citizens. And he's the one that will protect and grant unto us all that we need. An earthly crown, that would detract from the glory of his rule. And so, beloved, by faith, we press on, knowing the wonder of Christ's perfect sacrifice, the wonder of the joy of our salvation. And through the storms of life, we keep our faith focused on him who alone is able to preserve and to keep us. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, we are weak, but thou art strong. Strengthen our faith. Grant that we might press on, knowing and believing that thou art with us, never to leave us nor forsake us. And as thou dost lead us through storms and through uncertainties, through grief and through sorrow, work in us that joy that is centered in the promises that thou hast given and the wonder of salvation, that our hope might be in thee alone. Amen.